Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Welcome to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. Our guest today is my friend Vlad Rashkovan. He's an alternate executive director at the International Monetary Fund, representing Ukraine and 14 other primarily Eastern European nations. Alternate executive director of the IMF doesn't really capture his career or what he's been doing. That's a very important role at the International Monetary Fund. It's like being an ambassador to the IMF. But Vlad has had a really interesting career in the public and private sectors in Ukraine. He spent eight years working at Unicredit Bank Ukraine, for which he was the CFO. He also was deputy governor of the National Bank of Ukraine, the nation's central bank. As deputy governor, Mr. Rashkovan was responsible for planning and implementing reforms within the Ukrainian banking sector. He's a senior expert on the economy of Ukraine. He's a senior expert on finance, and he's been an important person for the Ukrainian government in terms of helping think through and engaging various international institutions. He was the organizer of an important conference, one of the organizers of an important conference at the London School of Economics about a month ago. And he's got a really amazing global Rolodex that he's been calling upon to help with Ukraine's reconstruction to begin to think about it. Now, given recent events and the current trajectory of the war in Ukraine, today's podcast is going to focus on a possible future reconstruction effort in Ukraine and how it will be executed. Vlad, thanks so much for joining us today and welcome to Building the Future with Dan Rundy. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks for inviting The war is still going on. Is this the right moment to begin to think in initial stages about a possible reconstruction of Ukraine? Yeah, absolutely. I, I believe so. Again, I believe that the major challenge for the reconstruction is uh, ongoing war, and there is no clarity when and how it may end up. It's a challenge, but not an obstacle. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm not complaining. You know, the war is awful. Huh? I'm sure Ukraine will win, but there are still many open questions before that. For example, how the victory picture or image looks like for Ukraine. Is a ceasefire which could be imposed by weakened Russia now is a good outcome of the, of the war? I, I don't believe so. To claim a victory, at least partial, we need to restore our borders to the status of uh, February 23. But the problem is that after February 23, there was a February 24, you know, a day of brutal invasion of, of Russia to the Ukrainian territories. So the second question would be, what kind of peace deal, you know, will make Ukraine investable? Because we clearly need the, the private capital after the war to reconstruct the country. How to make Ukraine investable after the war? If there will be a permanent threat of the future invasion, it will be very hard to reconstruct Ukraine. So it's, it's a big challenge. But another question would be, uh, as we discussed with you several times, is uh, Ukraine needs to recontrol over its seaports. My country is a large exporter of agriculture and metal, and open shipping is one of the core needs for Ukraine. And therefore, if and when we will do it, it's also a big challenge for us in terms of the economic development. So I believe that the best outcome of the war would be to restore Ukrainian borders, uh, you know, something you said, 91, therefore liberating Donbass and Crimea, getting access to our major ports in Odessa, Mariupol, Berdyansk, and I'm sure we will achieve those targets. The question is when. Could you talk about, you helped organize a conference 
uh, at the London School of Economics. Could you share a little bit about, were there any kind of takeaways that you could share more publicly with this group? Yeah, for sure. You know, the idea of the conference uh, came to me probably the first weeks of the war. And uh, because I start thinking immediately about the, the future reconstruction, you know, post-war reconstruction, because it was already visible that at least infrastructure damage will be awful. It will be really substantial. As of uh, last week, uh, the estimations of the damage were more than $100 billion. It is expected that uh, this year the Ukrainian GDP will decline 45%, assuming that it was uh, $200 billion around the GDP in 2021. Uh, this is like a minus $90 billion of the economy. And if you think about the loss of potential GDP in the future, this is really huge. You know, we need to think immediately on the, on the reconstruction. And I start, you know, approaching the teams, uh, which for me were really capable to do this. And I found uh, nine different teams in and out Ukraine, uh, you know, who were already thinking about that. So the idea of the Forum in London School of Economics was to bring them together, to increase the awareness of who does what take some buy-in from different parties because they were also representatives of IMF, World Bank, KFC, BRD, European Investment Bank, European Commission, US government, UK government, EU government, Canadian government. So really like that was very, very well-thought group of people. And the third idea was to build the coalitions. It was fully achieved, you know, because uh, while everybody came with their own ideas, 80% of the outcome was shared and 20% additional was complementary to something which has been shared by everyone. So one of the major outcomes was a clear thing, clear idea that we don't need to, to wait for the end of the war to start reconstruction. We need to act now. And this was very, very important, you know, and we can discuss it further what kind of, what kind of obstacles we have with that. The second thing was we were working also on the vision of Ukraine, post-war vision of Ukraine. And we were also discussing the, the potential financial arrangements, how to ensure that the money will be there, how to build the implementation machine. We were discussing how to build also the accountability mechanisms. Therefore, because we know there are a lot of prejudice about Ukraine, also as a part of the Russian narrative that Ukraine is a corruptive state, but really to build a transparent uh, accountable mechanism in order to ensure that money which will be spent for reconstruction, they're spent efficiently, effectively, and uh, in transparent way. How do you, let's talk about the role of the international community, the United States, the European Union member states, Canada, Japan, the IMF, which you're an alternate executive director for, the EBRD, an important regional development institution for that, let's call it the post-Soviet space. That's not a nice way to say it, but it's a good shorthand. The EIB, the European Investment Bank, which is sort of a financier of European integration, the World Bank, all these institutions and friends of Ukraine are going to play a role. So could you talk a little bit about how are you thinking about and how should Ukraine be thinking about what role the international community plays? Because President Zelensky has said, we're putting together something called U24. We have aspirations to, to, to drive our own reconstruction. We have a lot of capable people. We're a capable state. We're a capable society, a little bit to your point. We've got our own vision, and we'd like the international community to more fully fit into what our vision is as opposed to the international community coming in and, let's say, imposing something. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I think there are three different uh, elements here. The first, uh, I believe the international community first... Uh, to develop and to populate some kind of uh, understanding or what I say is a geopolitical empathy, 
you know, to Ukraine. You know, just because Ukraine is fighting not only for its freedom and independence, you know, we really fight for humanism, for democracy, for liberal idea, multiculturalism, globalization, all those values which uh, the consolidated West was protecting during the last 40, 50 years. And those values which Putin actually stands against, you know, he tries to prove that dictatorship, state capitalism, regionalism, and divided worlds, uh, world are uh, better ways to run the world in 21st century. And uh, this is why, you know, the West should support Ukraine and to show this kind of geopolitical empathy uh, to Ukraine. Otherwise, you know, if we, if we don't succeed, including in reconstruction, this will show to other dictators in the world that they can threaten and invade their smaller neighboring countries. And we need to avoid this in the, if we want the world to be more uh, stable in the future. The second thing is, I think the developed countries, including U.S., uh, should understand that Ukraine currently lives in parallel in different times, different time zones. Some part of the country is annexed, is around 20%, and there is a guerrilla war there, and uh, we need to think how to support them as well. Another part in the, reg in the regular, pretty hot fights with Russian forces, uh, while other parts of Ukraine are already liberated by Ukrainian forces and uh, require the reconstruction now. And as this is what we discussed in a few minutes ago, that uh, we need to act now, and therefore we don't need to wait the post-war time uh, to, to support Ukraine for reconstruction. And this is very much important because cities like Bucha, Irpin, Chernigiv, Borodyanka, Kharkiv, uh, there is a need to rebuild roads, bridges, houses now. In some cities, you know, the, you know that Russia is uh, uh, targeting the critical infrastructure, which is completely damaged. You know, refineries, airports, heating systems in the towns, you know, and winter is coming and all these issues to be resolved. You know, there are 7 million people of, who flee the country as a part of the war. You know, 8 million people are internally displaced. And we need to return these people to their homes uh, because, as you know, it's also psychologically, it's not so easy to, to live uh, outside. The, the people need to live, you know, eat, sleep, uh, and therefore the support is needed now. And free, you know, how this support can be achieved, you know, by the international community, I think the first question is coordination. Coordination, coordination, and coordination. We, uh, so far, uh, the world is not super coordinated in terms of support. Uh, Ukraine now needs about $5 billion monthly to help to sustain the economic, uh, even before reconstruction, the economic situation, because the revenues of the budget substantially decreased uh, for many reasons, uh, while the costs increased and the, the, and the external markets are closed for Ukraine. Therefore, the, the world should support Ukraine now. But for few, so if we cannot get money like $5 billion now, how we will get $100 billion, hundreds of billion dollars for the, for the reconstruction? I think the answer is the coordination. The international institutions and the European Union together, they should uh, create some kind of competence center or the, the group of people which could unite people from US, EU, UK, Canada, and maybe Japan. So like a G7 countries, I would say like this, to, to dedicate uh, maybe 15, 20 people to, to work on the reconstruction 100% of time. Europe says this is a, they, they have an idea of the rebuild Ukraine platform. I think it could be a good idea to do this, uh, but we need to make it more inclusive for other countries, not only for EU. Well, how does EU accession fit into a future reconstruction of Ukraine? And how should we be thinking about it? Because I think there's different ways to think about EU accession in the context of reconstruction. First, I expect that Ukraine will get a candidate status in, in a week. 
And, uh, you know, the European Commission last week uh, recommended the member states to grant this uh, candidacy for Ukraine. I think it's a big, big step after the 2014 uh, when we signed the DCFTA with, with Europe. And we actually progressed a lot. And the European, European Commission, uh, you know, confirmed that there was a big progress uh, which Ukraine uh, made uh, in the last uh, eight years towards the European Union path. And uh, I believe it will be a big, big project uh, for Ukraine, the joint. European Union. It will not take a year or two, it will take longer, which is normal. I hope Ukraine will also stimulate European Union to transform the accession process itself. I think it is important. And in general, I believe that European, uh, Ukrainian people, Ukrainian leadership uh, made now for European Union uh, more than many European leaders in the last decade uh, in order to increase the geopolitical level of, of European Union and therefore to increase the role of European Union in, in the world. Uh, Uh, in the world which looked recently and like bipolar, you know, with US and China, uh, clearly European Union now plays its role. At the same time, uh, I believe that uh, reconstruction should not be an integral part of uh, European Union accession. I believe it should be uh, interdependent, interconnected, but a parallel process. Uh, Just because the European Union accession is a lot about the policies, is a lot about the uh, legislation, uh, to least uh, level it's, uh, it's about um, infrastructure, uh, it's a lot about standards. Clearly, we need to assume the standards for the roads, for the railway, for the airports uh, when we do the reconstruction of Ukraine. But I don't want to stuck with reconstruction if, for example, one day in future we will be stuck in, uh, in the process of European Union accession. So it's an interconnected process, uh, uh, interdependent process, very much coordinated together, but not uh, an integral part. Uh, I hope uh, and I, I think we all need uh, that all G7 countries to play a big role uh, in the reconstruction and not only European Union. So Vlad, what about there's going to be a, the numbers that are thrown around are enormous. There's not enough foreign aid to fund all of this. And a lot of the kinds of things that are needed are investment capital from the private sector. This could be from private investment funds. This could be from big global multinationals. This could be from Ukrainian industry itself. And it could be from the Ukrainian people who've saved money and, and you know out of the Ukrainian financial system. Could you talk about the role of the private sector and what do donors and what does the Ukrainian government need to do to create an, an environment that's attractive for investment capital, even while, you know, and, and to begin to think about that? I think uh, we need uh, to do a one step back and to speak about the different sources of financing for reconstruction. Clearly, the first money, first money should come from organizations like IMF. While IMF is not uh, dealing directly with reconstruction, clearly the role of IMF will be uh, to build the macroeconomic fundament for the, for the reconstruction. And this is very much important because we need to return to good uh, economic policies post-war. Uh, you know, to budgetary, fiscal, monetary policies, which are currently really not aligned. And the IMF is very good uh, in providing financial assistance to, to make this uh, happen. Clearly, World Bank, as you mentioned before, you know, they have much more role in infrastructural things. Likewise, also EBRD and European Investment Bank. While EBRD is more focusing on uh, the private sector support, the EAB will be focusing more on the infrastructural topics as a part of European Union accession. I think there is also a role of uh, KfW from, from Germany and maybe some other banks, uh, you know, development banks which are currently in, in, in the world. 
The another big resource is clearly the G7 support, bilateral support, as we see now. US is providing a huge support now. Germany is planning. Canada provided last week uh, one billion Canadian dollars as a as a support for Ukraine. The U.S. assumes seven point five billion dollars uh, in the amendment to the budget. Uh, European Union promised nine uh, uh, billion euro macrofinancial assistance, but all of this is just to run before the reconstruction. It's not solely for reconstruction money. For reconstruction, a big source of reconstruction could be the arrested Russian money. You know, the money of the central bank and uh, also the the oligarchs. Uh, Clearly, there are now about 300, 400 billion dollars. I believe not only Ukraine should benefit from this money, but also, for example, American companies which left the Russian market clearly got some losses. And therefore, we need to understand that these losses can be also covered by these arrested money. So those who lost something during the war should benefit from this money. And finally, as you said, all of this will be not enough because we need the private sector. I don't need Ukraine to come out after the war with a state capitalism, a lot of debt and a lot of international support. The country should be the privately, private business driven and the liberal and not state economy. Otherwise, we will, as we said, recreate the Russian way of doing, doing business. To attract the, the money, I think there are many different um, ways there will be a lot of opportunities for the business. For example, I believe after the war, Ukraine should be you know, one of the leaders of the new security architecture in Europe. Also by enabling the privately driven defense and aerospace industry, clearly there is a space for the private capital to play this. You know that Ukraine has a big uh, assets in the, in the space industry and also in defense. Uh, there will be a big demand uh, and therefore we hope that the foreign companies will join this market and try to build something. Uh, here. Uh, and um, another issue is agriculture. Uh, in 2024, Ukraine, uh, the, the land market should be fully open for the, also for the foreigners. Uh, so the, um, I really welcome the U.S. companies who want to explore the opportunities and to play a, a bigger role in the global food security, especially if we will resolve all the issues related to the, to the port. While we discussed in in London, uh, one of the biggest issues uh, for us is uh, clearly still to build a rule of law, better rule of law system in Ukraine. And I'm sure that the current leadership of the country is working hard and also as a part of the future programs uh, with IMF and other organizations uh, to completely restructure the legal system, including there are some ideas to accept something like, uh, you know, the British law in, in the country to outsource some parts of the commercial court practices, maybe to the London courts, etc. So there will be a lot of the opportunities uh, and uh, the government is working to enable, enable them after the war. Vlad, how should we think about, for example, there is natural gas, there's Russian natural gas that flows through Ukraine. Some parts of Ukrainian industry, including things like fertilizer, depend on natural gas. If I understand it correctly, Ukraine has gas passed through to Europe and then buy some gas through kind of, I'm, not, I'm almost going to call it like recycled Russian gas. Is there a scenario in your mind where Ukraine stops buying Russian natural gas and that Europe stops buying Russian natural gas and that we turn off the pipeline that goes through Ukraine of natural gas? I would split this question to, to two and just to, to, just to clarify. Ukraine has uh, currently uh, a pipeline which goes through Ukraine uh, 
And Ukraine, even during the war, was serving as a reliable supplier and transitor for Europe, because this is a gas which goes from Russia to Europe. And we were, despite the war, we were executing our obligations under the contract of supplying gas, you know, because this is uh, our obligation in front of the European customers. Uh, and clearly, as we, as we were telling for many years, Russia is using the gas as a blackmail, you know, so to, to blackmail Europe. Uh, and I, as we know, the inflation, also inflation in US, uh, is uh, partially impacted by the elevated energy prices by Russia also before the war, because they wanted uh, to increase the price of gas, and therefore to weaken uh, the possibility of uh, Europe and willingness of Europe to fight with them uh, and to support Ukraine, because the, uh, you know, still the, the issue is how to hit Europe during the war is not solved. But the second part of your question, Ukraine is not buying Russian gas for already seven years, seven or eight years. We buy the European gas, you know, from Europe. We're not buying Ukraine gas from, from Russia like it was before 2014. You know, how the gas gets to Europe, this goes through different sources. Uh, this is already a different, different question, but I'm not the biggest specialist here. Vlad, this has been amazing. This is so interesting. And I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to speak with us. I appreciate it, and I look forward to staying in touch with you. Thanks so much for making time to be on Building the Future with Dan Rundy today. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Antonio. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 